the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Javante, Jacob, Katia, Andrew, Tia, Violet, Dustin, Shahizi, and the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into uh, the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. This hour, we're going to be talking about the uh, transformative power of forgiveness as it holds sway in an emotionally gripping coming-of-age story, The Home Stretch, from award-winning author Wayne Johnston, who joins me by phone. Wayne, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, this uh, coming-of-age story, it's, it's uh, kind of interesting because of the way it folds elements of your life into what is book two of a planned trilogy um and and this one being the backstory of a character that's based uh not too loosely on you that's true (laughs) uh is it tough to write something um that you know, is the is as probing as this book is, um, and emotional as emotional as this book is, um, about yourself, or does it kind of fall into that mantra about write what you know? Does both things. Uh, I taught writing in high school and community college for several years, and I would have students come up with a story that they would want to set in New York or Los Angeles or Las Vegas or some exotic place that they had never been. And I'd point out to them that, okay, you can lose credibility by not telling the truth, by not being accurate. And if you don't need to do that, or if the way you're describing that place isn't so general that it doesn't matter, don't do it. Stick with things you know. 
because whether writing flies or not depends on selection of key details that bring the reader in and uh, make them believe you. So when I wrote this, it's kind of a, it started out as an essay. I'd gone to Vietnam on vacation and I, the trip made me think of a, a lot of things in my life. I grew up during the Vietnam era. And it really brought back an event between my father and I that happened right after I flunked my draft physical and made me think of forgiveness. Uh, the Vietnamese have, are attempting to forgive us for the Vietnam War. And it was, it was a really, I don't know, life-changing, moving experience to be there and see what happened in the aftermath of this big event that affected my formative years very much, and to find out you know, the outcome of the horror that I had escaped, I guess. How, uh, Wayne, how did you go from uh, working on tugboats, basically, to um, teaching English and uh, creative writing? Well, I got diagnosed with leukemia when I was 43 in 1993 at what I guess would have been the prime of my life. I had kids that were, my son was eight, my daughter was 14, and I'd spent 22 years on tugboats, and I was getting tired of the life, I think. I, I had spent most of my tugboat career as chief engineer, and I was I'd shifted over to mate to get out of the engine room and drive the boat if I was going to keep doing it. But it was pretty clear to me that I really didn't want to do it anymore. And when I was diagnosed with leukemia, uh, I was pretty much told to go home and settle my accounts with people I cared about. And when I survived it, I, I made the decision that I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do something different. And so I made a leap. And it was a, in a lot of ways, it was a terrifying leap, but it paid off big time. I, the 20 years I taught are probably the best years of my life. And they influenced this uh, trilogy very significantly because in the first book, North Folk, um, that's, that's really told in... Uh, uh, by three students. Um, I'm not sure how to better describe that. Perhaps, perhaps you can. This new book, um, the home stretch, is uh, the English teacher's backstory from the first book. That's true. The, the first book is there are three seventeen-year-olds. Uh, one I taught. One of my, I think, most important assignments was I had everybody in junior English, which is, you know, uh, write, uh, they had to write like 90 pages of journal per semester. And they, they could write about anything they wanted. And so it opened up for all kinds of 
I got an insight into kids. I, I knew those kids probably better than anybody in the school. And it was so the book North Fork ends up being told as journal entries to Bill Smith's class, English class uh, about some kind of formative events in their lives. Uh, one girl is good student, really undercover, very unhappy with her life. She cuts herself. She, she's depressed a lot. Um, and she decides to run away. And she disappears to Canada because it's set right around the time of, like maybe the year of, but before 9-11 when you could still go to Canada. Kids would go there to drink because the drinking age was either 18 or 19, and it's 21 in Washington. So the college kids from Bellingham would go across the border all the time and come back, and it wasn't a big deal. So she just escapes and goes to Victoria and tries to start a new life. And so back at home, her best friend is really upset and thinks that she's everybody in the town thinks she died. And they blame the kid who she was befriending, but who has a pretty bad history. And so the story kind of unfolds from there. She's, she's in Victoria trying to start a new life on her own and does it fairly successfully. And the people back at home, her friend is in jail because they, they're, they're pretty sure he killed her. And her girlfriend is just upset and trying to deal with the loss. And that's kind of how the story unfolds. But they each tell it separately in journal entries. And, and then we, we move to book two, The Home Stretch, which is the backstory of, of Bill Smith. And in many ways, your backstory, um, it, it was, uh, that's, that seems like a, like a very personal thing, a, per, a personal experience to go through. Was it difficult to write? Was it, um, or, or cathartic in some ways? Yeah, it was all of those things. It, uh, when I made the transition from exploring forgiveness from point of view of, you know, just touring Vietnam and Cambodia and thinking about the aftermath of the war uh, with enough distance to kind of make it deaden it to, to, to where the well, actually, the life expectancy in Vietnam is around 62. And so I went there uh, three years ago, I think. And it, there aren't that many people who experienced the war still alive. So you're getting feedback from the next generation and the generation after that. Uh, when we toured the Chichi Tunnels, which is where the Tet Offensive was planned, the kids who led us were 18, 19, dressed up in Vietnamese army uniforms. And they had no reaction to our being American. Uh, there's a dead Huey helicopter in the parking lot. There are sheds full of uh, bombs that are that didn't go off, that, that have been... Uh, 
neutralized. And then there's bomb craters everywhere, and there, uh, there are bunkers you can go in, and they've got it set up kind of a, it's like <laughs> department store mannequins. They've got a sandal factory. They've got you know tables with mannequins around, like like the generals who were planning the the war strategy. And you crawl through these tunnels that are totally claustrophobic, and you try to imagine people living there. And the energy and anger and desperation reflected in that effort. Uh, it it sounds like what you saw going on there was that they're still very much uh, living with the impact of the Vietnam War uh, in a way that, that Americans aren't. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I mean, they have we we have monuments to World War II, and that gets referred to a lot in the home stretch. I I talk about uh, well the fortifications around the military base and on Puget Sound that I played on as a kid, and that was only five years after World War II ended. But they were sandbag docks that were anti-aircraft uh, emplacements guarding a military base. And when I was a kid, they were just sandbag docks, and you'd fish off them. And they've all been removed now. But but I I try to deal with in the book that time, the passage of time, makes impact lose its energy. And, and I that's I mean, Vietnam, they get to forgive us because they won. And their attitude seems to be that the had misplaced good intentions. We meant well. They they got kind of messed over by their allies at the time. I mean, after the war was over with the American, after the American War, which is how they referred to it, was over. They had border issues with China. They had issues with Russia, about Cambodia, and they they felt like they were pawns getting jacked around it. In fact, our tour guide told us that Vietnam's been in some kind of conflict for 2,000 years. Well, yeah, France and was uh, was there and pulled out before the U.S. became much more heavily involved. Right. And so, so anyway, that, that gets threaded through the book. Uh, and let's see. <laughs> uh, I end up using that, I guess, as a way to talk about and kind of explore the complexity of forgiveness. Forgiveness is hard stuff, and it's hard for us to move ahead without coming to some kind of grip with it when we've been damaged. Wayne, I have to uh, take a uh, short break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes and we'll talk some more? Yes, of course. My uh, guest is award-winning author Wayne Johnston. His new book, The Home Stretch, is the second book in a trilogy, and we're going to talk uh, more about um, forgiveness and mortality when, uh, when we return. If you're listening to us on 92.1 FM WFOV in Flint, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well, so stay tuned.
Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Out of sight. Have yourself a merry Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov.
Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. And the Tom Sumner Program. What do comic books have to do with Susan B. Anthony, Stormy Daniels, and Congressman John Lewis? Find out New Year's Eve 2020 on the Tom Sumner Program. Author Mark Schulman talks about comic book biographies of Walt Disney and Susan B. Anthony. The creative team from Tidal Wave Productions talk about a new comic book series called Stormy Daniels Space Force. Plus, former congressional aide Andrew Aiden talks about developing a three-part comic book series about the civil rights movement called March with Congressman John Lewis. The Tom Sumner Program continues our look back at 2020 with comic books for New Year's Eve, streaming live from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com, repeating online all day and night, simulcast on 92.1 FM in Flint at 9 a.m. and p.m. Happy New Year from the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the uh, author of a new book uh, called The Home Stretch, Wayne Johnston. Wayne, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Thank you for having me. Sorry to make you sit through all that, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, we were talking about the fact that uh, The Home Stretch, your new book, is the uh, second in a uh, trilogy. Um, when you were writing North Fork, did you know it was going to be a trilogy, or did you get to the end and go, but wait, there's more? I didn't know it was going to be a trilogy. North Fork was kind of a strange adventure. Uh, I taught writing in high school, and the, the class got credit at the local community college. And I would try to write the assignments I gave to the students along with them, and I assigned a short story. It was a small-town angst story, I guess. I asked the students how many of them wanted to leave the small town we live in uh, as soon as they graduated, and most of them said yes. So we, I assigned a story about that process, and I ended up writing it with them, and I ended up with what is now a chapter in North Fork, and it was just something I shared with the students, and they shared their stories. And I was mowing the lawn one day, and I go, okay, what if this girl, that's the story. Uh, well, the main character actually drops the girl that's in the story that started the book off a gas station. She's a total minor character. She just drops this girl off, and then she meets somebody and goes off on kind of a wild adventure. Uh but the girl who dropped her off and said, okay, what if she just disappeared? What would the town do? Now, fiction stories are a series of what ifs. 
what if this happened? What if that happened? And you play it out and try to make it make sense to people. And uh, so, no, I didn't know, think of it as a trilogy when I got done. Uh, actually, probably what made it go there was there was a lot of Bill Smith in that story. And when I was trying to sell that book, an agent told me, this is a YA novel. And I didn't really think of it that way. I was kind of thinking of it as a way to share what I learned about kids with parents. And so she said, you got to get rid of the adult. And <laughs> it ended up being about 30,000 words. It was kind of a third or a fourth of the book. And I, I was really mad after, you know, I left this interview with an agent you know, going like, she told me I got to go home and destroy this. And then I thought it over and I go, no, she's right. It'll be a better book. So I cut Smith out and I actually didn't use any of or very little of the Smith stuff I wrote for North Fork in the home stretch. I ended up kind of just uh, well, starting over in a way. Yeah, so well, starting over and and you asked earlier about writing about myself and the parallel between Bill Smith and me. And uh, when I was teaching, I taught a short story by a lady named Eugenia Collier who made an observation about memory. She said that it's an abstract painting that presents things as they feel rather than as they are. And I guess what I, now I see the home stretch is pretty much an abstract painting of my life. Uh, I had the opportunity to publish her. I showed it to him very early on. He just, you know, he published North Fork, and we are in contact. And he goes, well, what are you working on now? And so I showed it to him, and he said, I'll publish this. You can publish it as a memoir. You can publish it how, you know, to figure out what, where you're going to go with it. And that was like two years before it got done. Uh, but I ended up deciding that I didn't want to be held accountable to it being kind of an accurate reflection of my life. And uh, I would rather, it's a good story, and I decided, so I, as it unfolded, I ended up pulling stuff out of old journals and kind of observations. Uh, there's a tugboat storm, I think it's chapter 16. Uh, Smith is on his tugboat at work, and he's in a storm in the Gulf of Alaska, and it's a it's a kind of a wild sea story. And when I was working on tugboats, I made some notes and described the boat that I was working on at the time. And so I had notes like that to pull out to, to be authentic. Uh, and I had lots of things I had attempted to write about growing up. And, and they, so I ended up pulling from them for their accuracy fitting them together and trying to engineer them into a story that would be readable page turner to somebody who didn't care a thing about me, didn't know me, and that I shouldn't be the focus of it, that the story is the focus of it. And so I ended up with an autobiographical novel that, you know, people that I know recognize parts of it 
and it does parallel my life. I worked on tugboats. I got was diagnosed with leukemia when I was 43. I shifted careers and became a teacher. So, so there's a lot of things that are parallel, but I don't want it to be, and I don't see it as a documentary of my life. It's not an autobiography or or a genuine memoir. It's it's a, a novel based on your life. There you go. It's I. It really was important to me to transcend writing about me and to write this story and to if I could use things about me to make the story more credible. I, I you know to. You can describe things you know way better than you can go take the time to research and learn sure. about the place. So, so I cheated in a way. I used myself <laughs> and my wife to, to, to give Bill Smith a kind of credibility that I couldn't have achieved otherwise, I guess. Well, all writers base characters on, on often uh, real people, sometimes composites, but why not me? I, one of <laughs> one of my bucket list things is I was you know when I was teaching school I used the book by Norman McLean that he wrote when he was seventy and or got published when he was seventy I go okay if he could do that maybe I can too and so after I, I uh, retired I ended up. I've got two of them now, and I'm working on a third. It's a great way to be retired, I guess. Wayne, what made you um, keep those journals or, or keep those notes when you were on tugboats? Were Were you always interested in writing? Yeah, uh, I. Well, I wanted to be a teacher. Teachers saved my life in a lot of ways. I. Uh, I left home when I was 17, and I teachers saw things in me and kind of drew me into keeping going. And uh, so I wanted to be a teacher, and when I I ended up going to college, <laughs> partly because of a girl, and partly because and hugely because of the Vietnam War. Uh, the relationship with the girl ended, and I probably would have dropped out and become a carpenter. I did some. Of, I worked construction a lot back then, and I didn't hate it. I I kind of still like it. Uh, but Vietnam. If I quit, I was going to Vietnam. So I kept stayed in school, and instead of I actually did a practicum in high school class when I was considering getting into the education program to get my teaching certificate back then and realized that at age 21, I had no business getting up in front of a class of 17-year-olds. I, I, there wasn't enough space. So I didn't have enough authority. I didn't have what I needed. So there I was getting ready to decide who I was going to be and what I was going to get my degree in. University of Washington, I think back then, was one of three or four schools that offered a degree in creative writing. And so I went for it. And I worked 
well, during that time, while I was still in college and afterwards, I worked for the Seattle Urban League uh, as a writer and a publicist. And ah, so that it kind of the school writing helped me at work. I learned at work that technical writing wasn't really what I wanted to do, my passion, and my office was in a building in Seattle that looked out over the harbor. Uh, boats came and go, and I ended up going there. So where does part three go? Part three follows the kids. It revisits so far two of characters from North York at age like 38 or 40. And that's been kind of challenging. I started it. I've got, I got some stuff that I like, but I don't. I haven't. I keep waiting to try and find. Okay, what's the plot going to be? Because a book doesn't work unless it has a plot. Uh, you have to have a, a bunch of what ifs leading up to a, a moment where things come to, come together and. If I don't know that yet, it's really hard to get to work on it. It's okay to I can keep pouring stuff out and then later redo it, and that seems to work for me okay. Uh, I think that's the way the home stretch worked. I poured a lot of stuff out, and then when I finally figured out where home stretch was going to go, I went back and drew on it and came up with what I hope works. <laughs> I was I was going to ask you a little bit about the writing process, Wayne, because. Um, having taught creative writing, do are, are you uh, kind of structured? Do you do you write an outline and then flesh it out, or do you let the story kind of tell itself? I, I let the story tell itself, and then afterwards, what's been interesting to me that what I've learned, I think, is that revision is everything and it's okay to throw mud at the wall it's okay i i guess that was the most freeing thing i learned from teaching writing was that and you throw stuff out and you can throw all kinds of things away uh it's okay to throw stuff away and you you if you've got it in you maybe you need to get it out writing i think is good therapy i think that's probably why i've stuck with it it, I think it saved my life in a lot of ways. It helps me sort through events in my life so I feel so I feel like I understand them because when you reflect, if there's, I won't, you know, if there's bulk <laughs> embedded in it, you're diluting yourself, it usually comes to the surface. And so I think that's a huge part of writing for me is I and that's what I try to teach the kids and that's why I did the journalist classes. I think that sitting down and writing something out helps you see it. It's just good for you. I have kids when I assign the journal that hate me and I don't <laughs> want to do stupid. And then I go, cool, write about anything. Write about that. Write about how I'm a jerk and you hate me. I don't care. You know, just sit down and make yourself write something. And often at the end of the year I would, the last journal entry was, when I started doing this, I hated it, but now I think it's a good deal. <laughs> and nice. and they would have kind of woken up and found some thread in their life that needed to be explored and then gone with it and ended up feeling good about it. And I 
think that may be one of the most important things I did as a teacher. Are you able to write full time? I'm retired, and I yes, I that's that's been the joy of having retired. I I'm 71, and I retired at 65. And both of these books were published since then. And I you know it's kind of a lifelong dream that I could never really pull off the way to give it the kind of energy and I guess patience. Give it the kind of patience where. There's no pressure. I don't need it or to pay my rent or house payment or any of that stuff. I don't need it to eat. I just want to do it and do it right. And I, when I'm on a roll, I usually work from 8.30 in the morning till maybe 1 until I get kind of burnt out. And I go walk in the woods or paddle a kayak or something and air out. And if my grandkids need me, I put it down and go hang with the grandkids. And if we want to go on a trip, I put it down and we go on a trip. So We talked about forgiveness briefly uh, earlier in our conversation, and I, I mentioned that, that that plays a role in the, in the book and the trilogy. Um, but what about mortality? What role does that play? in this trilogy it's, it's huge uh home stretch opens with bill and his friend sitting on his friend's deck on at his beach house and the friend is retiring and retiring is it's a scary process it's that you let go of a lot of things that have probably meant a lot to you and uh, i have friends who are in the process of retiring now and it's the process of letting go, especially if you really liked what you did uh, and knowing that you can't turn around and go back to it, uh, is, yeah, you're facing the abyss. And so in the opening scene, Norfolk, Ben, Bill's friend, is retiring and he's kind of gotten sick of his job. He's going, this is it. We're, we're on our way out. There's nothing to look forward to anymore. The best we can do is hang on to a little dignity as we fade. And Bill goes, wait a minute, you know, I've been on my way out for the last third of my life and I don't see it that way. And so then the book kind of takes off from there and you back Phil to when Bill was a kid and he attacks the to be or not to be question at about age 10 and deals with depression, deals with uh, suicidal thoughts and self-loathing thoughts, and doesn't accept his parents' religious beliefs. or He doesn't accept the world. He doesn't see the world the way his parents see it. He kind of wakes up into this world that looks very different to him than the way it's being presented around him, and he's an outlier. He, doesn't feel right about it and I think the early part of the book the, the scenes that set it up are one his friend talking about mortality and him taking issue to his friend's perception of it and then there's a scene where he's taking his father has Alzheimer's and has reached the place where it's time to put him in a home he can't be cared for by the family anymore and Bill has got him at the doctor's office for his physical 
to get into the nursing home, and the father says, is there something you want to know about me? And there's lots of things Bill wants to know about him, but he can't do it because the doctor's there, and he also, his father has Alzheimer's and is not reliable witness. I mean, he doesn't know where it could go. It could go anywhere. So he just lets it go. And I, I put it early in the book like that to give the reader a sense of, okay, we've got to answer this question. And and that's a good part of the book. It's, it's Bill wanting to find out about his father. And there's another scene a little later when Bill is about 12 where he creates a scene with his father, pushes it over the edge. They have a confrontation that Bill expects to get really violent and to end up with him, his father beating him. Uh, and it goes different, it goes way different than that. And he learns something about his father that changes both of their lives, I guess. They, uh, he sees a vulnerability in his father, and he realizes that he's on his own. He, he can't rely on his father to help him with anything, and he has to solve his own life after that. And then the book kind of follows in steps of their attempt at finding some way to, I guess, accept that they love each other very much, but they live in completely different worlds, kind of gain each other's respect. And I reveal early in the book both that Bill is still alive to retire, which I think if I had started with him as a kid and done it as a coming-of-age novel in that way where you watch him grow and, and then kind of get through challenges of early age and later age, uh, it could have been pretty dark. And I thought it was real important to let the reader know that, that no, this guy made it, but here's the journey it took to get there. Well, Wayne, it's yeah. it sounds fascinating. The home stretch is uh, book two in the trilogy, North Fork being the uh, first of the, uh, of the three. And we're just about out of time, Wayne, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and the book and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I, I bought the domain but haven't developed it yet. <laughs> where where um, can people go to find out more? I think if you just Google me, but here's an important thing that I meant to bring up earlier. You've introduced me as Wayne Johnston. That's my name. That's what I've gone by all my life. But when I started writing, it became clear very quickly that somebody already had that name. Ah. There's a Wayne Johnston who's written some really nice books. In fact, my sister gave me one like 15 years ago so I could have it on my coffee table and pretend that I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh Anyway, so it's important to include the M. Gotcha. I, I Wayne M. Johnston. Correct. Cause, and if you just Google me and the title of either of the books, the whole a lot of stuff comes up. Uh, I'm on Goodreads, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can buy the book at Target. 
Uh, in fact, you can buy it in Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's there are lots of outlets for both books. Well, Wayne, thanks so, so much for spending this time with me this morning, and best of luck with uh, with all of your work. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. All right, take care. We're going to take a short break. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. They say singing can help you remember things, so here's some tips for parents out there during these tough times. Number one. Make sure your kids wash their hands for 20 seconds after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside. Two. Virtual play dates, social and physical distancing can help save lives. Three. Tell them they're safe and show your love and pride. Yes, we'll get through this together. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Tom Sumner program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. If you have a knack for sales and fundraising and would like to become a valued member of a fun team, you could be a good fit for the Tom Sumner program. Help us develop the underwriters needed to continue to grow our brand. Write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com. The Tom Sumner program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. 
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob Hope back once again to tell you it's better to have Pepsi than flowing over your teeth now than to have water running under your bridge later. TomSumnerProgram.com the Tom Sumner Program.com oh, I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
Christmas comes around this time. 
Christmas music is better than everybody else's because it's local. We heard uh, C.J. Roberts' uh, White Trash Christmas and before that, Merry Christmas Baby from uh, Sheila Landis. And uh, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program, but not before I say thanks to all my great guests today, starting with uh, the uh, author of a new book um, called The Home Stretch. It's the second book in a trilogy uh, from Wayne M. Johnston, who uh, was a uh, tugboat chief engineer turned English teacher turned author. And uh, before that, we uh, talked to PBS's award-winning Travelscope host, Joseph Rosendo, and, uh, about his new book um, called, uh, let me make sure I get the title right, Musings, The Short Happy Pursuit of Pleasure and other journeys. And we started off uh, today's edition of the Tom Sumner program with um, Janice Lynn, the author uh, from the uh, Hallmark book series, uh, Wrapped Up in Christmas Joy, which is the uh, sequel to her previous book, Wrapped Up in Christmas. Janice Lynn with a heartwarming Christmas romance. There's smoking George Winters tickling the ivories, uh, letting me know it's time to head down the hall to the living room. But I will be back tomorrow. Tomorrow is Wednesday, which means armchair politics. We have our roundtable regulars, uh, Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the left and right, respectively. They'll be joined by former Flint mayor Dane Walling. So be sure and join us tomorrow for armchair politics, our weekly roundtable. In the meantime, good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.